tell people that Aristotle is racist and dumb and, and superstitious and bad and outdated. Um, that's a really good reason never to actually read him. And if you ever cracked the spine of a single book by Aristotle, it would immediately become apparent that this entire set of accusations is garbage, it's trash, it's actually laughably inaccurate. The Nicomachean Ethics is a saner, clearer, and truer book about humanity than every word that has ever fallen from the pen of any World Economic Forum flunky. All of our supposed wise men, all of our supposed greats are full of it when it comes to human nature. And Aristotle has some basic observations to make that will actually help you. And so the only way to keep people from realizing that is to tell them it's not worth and it's actually bad. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Jonathan Astro. With me is Ricky Allpike. Ricky, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Good. I'd like to read you out something. It does pertain to today's session. Uh, just try and stick with me, all right? I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth. Forgone all custom of exercises, and indeed it goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy... The air, look you this brave or hanging firmament, this majestical roof fretted with golden fire, why it appears no other thing to me than a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours. What a piece of work as a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me nor woman neither. You lost me at mirth. <laughs> <laughs> you lost me, mate. Well, I thought it would kind of get you because there's a bit of a trans thing at the end there. Like he says, like, you know, man delights not me, not woman. So I think he's what he's saying is that I wouldn't mind a bit of trans or some furry maybe. But um, uh, that was Hamlet. That was poetry. You're a Philistine. You should know better. <laughs> Today we're talking to <laughs> Spencer Clayton. <laughs> Uh, and he's going to uh, see if he can't convince us to to make some better choices uh, about. That's my my words. I'm not putting words in his in his mouth there. I, I want him to help me make better choices in my life, so I'm not just watching fight videos and buns on Twitter. Spencer Clavin is a scholar, writer and podcaster with a demonstrated devotion to the great works and principles of the West. After studying Greek and Latin as an undergraduate at Yale, he spent five years at Oxford earning his doctorate in ancient Greek literature. Now an editor at the Claremont Institute, he has written for many outlets including The Atlantic, The Los Angeles Times, City Journal, Newsweek, The Claremont Review of Books, The Federalist, The American Mind and The Daily Wire. He's here to talk about his book, How to Save the West, Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises and to talk about how ancient wisdom is not just relevant today, but is perhaps the antidote to the chaos out there. Spencer, welcome to The New Flesh. It's a delight. Thank you for having me. So firstly, Spencer, I, I would like to get your voice as my Siri voice. Uh, this is the voice <laughs> I want gu guiding me through life. It's Homeric and sonorous, and I feel I could do bigger things. I mean, I'm not sure how many. You'd probably have to record a lot of words, right, yes. to make that possible otherwise i would say let's do it my siri voice is the male british siri voice really which you can you can customize to a certain extent and i think i i when i was studying in the uk i wanted my siri to have a british accent like everybody else around we've got sort of a passive aggressive australian woman yes we do Ooh, 
Love that. <laughs> Lovable Australian <laughs> passive aggression. I will say that all of my friends in the UK, all my closest friends in the UK were Australian. For some reason, I just got on great with Australian people. Well, we'll take it. We'll, we'll definitely yeah. take that because, you know, as you know, we've got a, we've got a healthy, um, you know, sort of uh, rivalry with the POMs. So um, mm -hmm. uh, if we're one up, that's good. Not now, a big fan of your COVID policy, I have to confess to you. But uh, otherwise, big fan yeah. of Australia. We're, we're not fans either. No. Okay. All it's right. An then we can awkward. Get an awkward reality. So <laughs> I, I noticed um, in your feeds that you do poetry memorization challenges. Um, That's right. Can you tell us a bit about that? How long have you been doing that and, and perhaps why we should memorize poetry? Absolutely. Well, I've been memorizing poetry since I was in high school. Actually, my dad and I kind of had a monthly, this, this online challenge that I'm doing is based on a monthly challenge that my dad and I set for one another when I was in high school because it has to do with what I refer to as the furniture of your mind. And that's kind of a weird phrase, but if you think about, obviously you live in your mind, your mental atmosphere is in some sense you, it's your inner experience. And I believe pretty firmly there is a war going on. And I think it's a spiritual war over what's going to occupy that space with you. What kind of furniture are you going to stumble over or recline in as you're wandering around up there in your own inner life? And the greatest weapon that, if you like, the enemy has in that battle is social media, is this sort of constant slipstream of half-digested um, chunks of content. Um, it's not so much that any one thing in that slipstream is negative or repulsive or unpleasant or even distracting. It's that as a whole, it's a profoundly disorienting and I would say disintegrating experience to let your mind be dissolved into this assault of stuff. It's like, oh, here's three lines from an Elizabethan play and here's a nude photo. And up next, we've got like a cute dog, you know? And, and that's just a very dehumanizing way to live. And the greatest antidote that I know of to that experience, besides constant prayer and attention to scripture, is poetry memorization. Because when you read a poem, there's lots that can be said about that that's wonderful. It's very beneficial to read a poem once, to contemplate it, to chew on it even. But to memorize it is to let it kind of dig its grooves into your brain. If you think of the crevices of your brain and then think of the poem as like a chariot that sort of uh, runs across it. And you, you, you get these grooves in your brain so that it will come back to you. It's not just that you'll recite it consciously at any given moment. It's that these phrases will come back to you. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that travels with us, our life star hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar, not in entire forgetfulness and not in other nakedness, but trailing clouds of glory do we come. I would rather that randomly pop into my brain than whatever like PewDiePie did the other day. Not no like shame to PewDiePie, but it's just a way of for my own self and also to encourage others to uh, rewire their inner life a little bit and make it more ennobling. We've heard uh, Victor Davis Hanson describe this as building a monastery of the mind. Mm, and yes, that's an ancient concept. It really can. Can you yes. can you can you fill us in? 
I wish that I could cite you chapter and verse, but off the top of my head, I'm just going to say that the memory palace is a monastic technique. Victor's not um, inventing that. Although, of course, as you say, he deploys it to great effect, but especially in the medieval era, when monks were, in some sense, the sort of designated cultural memory that they you know, occupied this role in society, it, it, there's this medieval trichotomy, this sort of three-part idea of society, those who uh, fight, those who work, and those who pray. And the idea that, that prayer is one-third of the job of civilization, and that when you're doing it, you're, in some sense, defending the world in the same way, defending stability, peace, and so forth, in the same way that a soldier might be uh, on the front lines of battle. Um, that translates also into this kind of monastic role of preserving texts, copying texts, but also memorizing and remembering things. And something that we forget in our AI universe and our sort of online spaces, just because something's out there, just because it's written down, doesn't actually mean that the culture has retained it in some deep sense. Because the final goal, the telos, if you like, of any text is for it to seep into your bloodstream and your bones, you as an individual, and for that to somehow be incorporated into your life and your action. Um, we're here talking about this, this book that I wrote. That's the point of the book as well, is that it's not good enough for this stuff to live somewhere in an online database. It actually has to um, get into your bloodstream. And memorization is one way that, that happens. And the monks uh, were among those who were charged with that role to be the cultural memory. Um, and in doing so, they would build these memory palaces so that you have individual items associated with places in the palace. So maybe in my individual memory palace, the threshold contains the, you know, you, you walk into the threshold, let's say, and up to your right, there's the trivium, and to your left, there's the quadrivium. And that way I can visualize that there are these sort of three basic uh, scripts for thought, and then there are sort of four applications of that, and so on and so forth. And you can imagine building, adding on wings as you go. It's just a way of linking certain concepts or ideas to a visual space so that you can grasp them better. And just before we get into your book, I, I just want to explore this briefly because we, we've we got a ulterior motive with our audience. Huh. We're trying to see if we can get them subtly uh, to shift some of their focus to to great works, works that are uh, worthy of their time. And it, it look, it, to begin with, it may, perhaps need not be Aristotle, uh, but, but they might get there. But it, it's just about... We're trying to say very gently, make better choices, and mm. you know. So I want I want to see what you think about that idea of of of, uh, of people uh, who are interested in the culture war making better choices, uh, you know, and and whether they should or not, and um, you know. Uh, secondly, uh, no, we'll leave it we'll leave it at that first. Mm. Well, you've kind of given the game away, first of all, by saying it out loud just now, I would say. I'm just kidding. No, you're letting them know. We're, we're terrible hand. Machiavellians. We're not good. <laughs> or or you're playing 5D chess, because now <laughs> through this form of reverse psychology, they're going to think that you actually don't want to do it, and then they're going to go do it. In any case, I completely I, I salute this. I endorse this as a project. And it speaks very deeply to, well, to the whole project of my career, but also to my own podcast, Young Heretics, which is now currently in the process of transmutation at the Daily Wire, where we're making stuff for an even larger audience. And one thing that I have discovered, and maybe you've found this as well, is 
when I started Young Heretics, I thought this was going to be a niche side project because it was so unapologetically devoted to the classics. And it didn't, I mean, every week I would just say, kind of, here's what's in Dante. And I would go on my political rants and I would talk about, you know, current affairs or the stuff that typically gets clicks or whatever. But I, that was never the point of the show. That was just part of, you know, me talking. And really the meat of it was this stuff that I thought was incredibly obscure. I thought nobody on the internet cares about Homer. And immediately what I discovered, I mean, within like a couple episodes, is that there is an enormous hunger for that. And it's not that people don't want it. It's that it's not being offered and it's not being offered well. And more immediately available is all the junk and the garbage that we've been talking about. Politics, scraps of porn, scraps of, you know, degraded nonsense, whatever. Um, and so really what I think of it as is, you know, if you're very, very hungry, say you haven't eaten in all day, there's this thing in your body where you kind of like the, you're going to go for like a bag of M&Ms. Like if, if, if you are going to reach for something, it's going to be this like calorie dense kind of junk that just feels like you just want to stuff your face with it. And after that, you're not really going to be all that satisfied and you're also going to feel terrible. That's what social media is. It's just constant M&Ms, constant crisps, potato chips, what, what have you. And yet in that same state, if you're just as hungry, if somebody gives you a medium rare ribeye cooked to perfection, the, if you just take one bite of it, you're going to feel in some profound visceral way that that's richer and closer to what you need than the bag of M&Ms. But you have to get that first taste. I think the liturgical formula for this is taste and see, right? Taste and see that God is good. Give it one bite, one shot. And so the trick is actually not so much persuading people that this stuff is good. It's getting them to just take that first bite so that they know there's something more nutritious here and something that speaks more deeply to what they need. And that's really the whole game. So I like, and I, I gave you a kind of a hard time. I was kidding around with you about this like subterfuge that you propose to engage in, but I actually endorse that. I think you do have to, we all have to do this with ourselves. It's not as if, so Seneca, the great uh, Stoic philosopher writes in one of his letters about the moral advice that he gives. And he says, it, you shouldn't think of me as some kind of authority preaching from on high. You should think of me as a fellow patient in the next hospital bed over. And I'm giving you medical advice because I know that this is what heals me. And that's how we're, what we're all doing. We're all in this condition that we all need like a kick in the pants. It shouldn't be that hard. It shouldn't, we should just be virtuous. We should just do good things and read great books, but we don't. How do we get ourselves into that? Well, it's getting that activation energy going. It's like picking up the book, forcing yourself for half a second, and then the momentum kick picks up, I think, because people are so hungry that all you have to do is just give them that first bite. Well, speaking of great books, uh, we'd like to talk about your book now, which is How to Save the West. But before we do, maybe we should talk about the West. So what do we mean when we say the West? Right. I, when I started writing this book, I told a friend of mine, oh, I'm writing a book called How to Save the West. And she said, 
That's awesome. I love John Wayne movies. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so do we. I, I was right. I mean, me too. That would be an awesome book. It's not the book I was writing. So I had to sort of gently break it to her that that's not what the West means. And I think we have all sorts of misconceptions about this. One is that we're just talking about the region that on a traditional map would be on the left. Um, another is that actually we're issuing some sort of white supremacist dog whistle that is just standing in for, you know, Caucasian cultures, essentially. That's what I was thinking. Naturally, I assumed. <laughs> you get, you give me the impression of the kind of guy who would jump <laughs> in. Uh, actually, yeah, um, you Australians. You know. No, I, actually, I mean, I, I, I do get that a lot online and in just general life. Like, you know, isn't that basic? In fact, in The Guardian, Kwame Anthony Appiah wrote a whole essay about how the West is a sort of fabricated concept and it's designed to delicately carve around all the white countries and just lump them all together. So, you know, we, we can sit here and laugh about this, but this is a major uh, argument that you'll find made in with the straight face. When I say the West, uh, therefore, I'm being quite specific. I'm talking about the cultural inheritance of Athens and Jerusalem. And by Athens, I mean the Greco-Roman philosophers of antiquity. And by Jerusalem, I mean the monotheists of the ancient Near East, Judaism and, and Christianity. And these are two profound streams of tradition in their own right. But a small miracle happens uh, shortly at the beginning of this era of, of the uh, year of our Lord, if you like. And that's when Paul preaches on the Areopagus in, in the book of Acts. And he preaches to the Stoics and the Epicureans. And at that moment, Athens meets Jerusalem and the Christian church begins to evangelize the pagan world. And in that moment, the West as we know it is born. And through the Roman Empire, throughout what is now Europe, and then beyond into America, and now throughout the world, Africa, Asia, these ideas, these traditions are carried forth hundreds and hundreds of years on, um, generation by generation. So it's the furthest possible thing, actually, from a particular race or nation that I'm trying to elevate above others. It's actually the one available escape route known to man out of his historical situation, out of his racial milieu out of his tribal affiliations if you want beyond all of that if you want truths that speak to every time and place well they have to come to you from somewhere and for those of us that are raised within the west they come to us from this tradition and there's no other source for them i mean we're not going to get them from somewhere else we're not going to get them by scrapping out our history and charging forth into some grand year zero where everybody's liberated and free. That's not how that works. If you want those things, if you want liberation, if you want freedom, if you want truth, you have to go back to the source. And that's what the West is. It's our source. It's our tradition of uh, seeking eternal truth. And, and and why do you think this concept of the West is, is so triggering to some people, mm. you know, and, and, and further, yeah. who do you think is triggered by this? Well, there are two classes of people, I would say, and one, speaking quite bluntly, is commies. Um, and that's, I would say, the sort of those who are theoretically opposed to the notion of Western civilization, to the notion of transcendent truth altogether, uh, because truths like that are immaterial. They're beyond, you know, the economic circumstances. And 
you know, in the German ideology and in Das Kapital and in some of his other works, Marx is quite explicit about all of this, the whole philosophical underpinning of, of Marxism, the, the central gesture of Marxism is to debunk, to boil down lofty pretensions to high ideals and to account for them in terms of material circumstances. You only think that because you want to retain this kind of power that you have. Usually in, in classic Marx, it's economic power. In neo-Marxist American terms, it's usually uh, demographic power, racial power, sexual power, whatever th thing they want to psychologize into you. And Freud was a great unwitting ally of Marx in this way that people now routinely you will hear the argument, well, you only think that because, I mean, white fragility is kind of the, the or text of this in our day, uh, Robin D'Angelo, but you get it also in Ibram Kendi that, you know, denial is the heartbeat of racism, that if you say you have something that transcends race, that's the surest sign that you're trying to deflect away from your evil racist uh, convictions. And so that's the first group of people is an actual cadre of an actual intellectual vanguard who, you know, in the latter half of the 20th century, as guided by many European Marxists, including Antonio Gramsci and so forth, um, decided that they were going to pick this apart and, and to um, deride and scorn Western civilization as one of the major pretensions to absolutism and ultimate truth that exists um, in America specifically. And then you have your dupes, your useful idiots, those who have been hoodwinked, however you want to put it. And that's the vast majority of people. And it's very effective because if you tell people that Aristotle is racist and dumb and wrong and superstitious and bad and outdated, um, that's a really good reason never to actually read him. And if you ever cracked the spine of a single book by Aristotle, it would immediately become apparent that this entire set of accusations is garbage, is trash. It's actually laughably inaccurate. The Nicomachean Ethics is a saner, clearer, and truer book about humanity than every word that has ever fallen from the pen of any World Economic Forum flunky. All of our supposed wise men, all of our supposed greats are full of it when it comes to human nature. And Aristotle has some basic observations to make that will actually help you. And so the only way to keep people from realizing that is to tell them it's not worth and it's actually bad to go to these texts. It's an idea that can only be sustained by those who have never really devoted any careful attention to the, the classics. And so now you do have a serious proportion of people that just react, have been trained, uh, deliberately trained to react in that triggered way whenever you start talking about the West and to call you racist and call you whatever else. Just, just on that point, Spencer, how many people... I, and I don't want to just say um, woke people, but hmm. I think you. I think you know what I mean. Hmm. How, how many people uh, do you think actually are across these uh, any of these these books? You know, or, or even I could extend that to good literature. I could extend it to good movies. Hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Fellini, whatever. Right. So, I mean, there's some. There's something so. Uh, interesting about a a someone who despises a, a a an ideology or an artwork but knows it really well you know there's something mm. nice about that and um uh, i find that this is a line in the sand like i can't imagine uh a lot of these people um you know having even t knowing hamlet or anything like that let alone having seen raging bull or red 
Aristotle or, or listen to classical music properly or whatever. So, mm. you know, what's your view on this? You, you make an excellent point, I have to say, and it makes me think that I think this is true. Hating something well is an act of respect. It's showing that you care enough about Homer, the Bible, whatever, um, to really uh, not only devote attention to how you might attack it, but to attack it on its own terms from a place of deep internal understanding. And you know who does this is Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, for all that I am very critical of him. Um, I'm reading right now one of his earlier works, Daybreak. And what strikes me again and again is exactly what you've said, and that is he was a meticulously trained philologist. He read the uh, certainly the pre-Socratics, not necessarily the, the Christian, um, you know, the patristic authors, but certainly classics he read with, with great acumen and attention. And so his critiques of them are sinister and cunning and sly um, and they demonstrate a profound respect they demonstrate an enormous degree of engagement um, and in that capacity therefore they're enormously useful even for somebody that wants to defend Christianity uh, defend Socrates defend Plato all these guys that that Nietzsche wants to uh, pick apart um, because you know that you're at least talking to somebody who is uh, raising serious problems. The kinds of critiques that we're talking about, um, woke critiques, neo-Marxist critiques, uh, new left critiques, however you want to identify them, um, have precisely the opposite character of actually being wearying to engage with, uh, I find at least. And that's one thing, that was one premise beside, behind Young Heretics was why would we even talk with these people? They add nothing. They add less than nothing. They suck information out of the air. Um, their whole project is to create a kind of cloud of confusion and misdirection. And I stand by that assessment, actually. I, it, it does become confirmed. I mean, it, it's one reason why in this mode, when you are talking about like the Wokies or whatever, um, humor is a much better like response, laughter is a much better response than engagement. It pays to engage with Nietzsche. It doesn't really pay to argue with identity politicians because they're not arguing with you. In fact, they're laying forth premises that explode the very possibility of rational argument. So I, I think that one reason why the kind of like online right has been so successful is they're just kind of funny. They have a good sense of humor. Um, and it pains me to, because like, uh, you know, I'm that debating society kid that wanted to think he had like a good answer to everything. But the truth of the matter is like, even when you do have a good answer, as we often do to like postmodernism and, and wokeness, you can issue that answer until you're blue in the face. You can come up with a million great ways to propose it and present it. And it doesn't leave a dent because that's not the sort of project you're, you're up against. Um, the, the Thomas More and, uh, Luther both in their respective capacity said something along the lines of the devil cannot bear to be mocked. And I think that's kind of a standard for, for our times. Mm. Well, maybe we can talk about uh, the wisdom of ancient Greece more broadly. I think most people out there 
haven't had any direct exposure to these texts and, you know, others maybe on the work side might even say, you know, it's time to shelve these pale male and stale authors for good. But yeah, just sort of in a broad sense, can you maybe tell us what ancient thinkers like Aristotle and Plato have to offer us in the modern world? Sure. I guess I would say, you know, if, if you're trying to come up with the way to maximize your TikTok content, like you're not going to find a passage on that topic in the Nicomachean Ethics. But, <laughs> but if you are wondering or if you're even passingly bothered by such questions as why am I here? What should I do? You know, what makes a good friend? Um, these sorts of questions which academic philosophy these days doesn't deal very much with, but which are the stuff and substance of most people's experience of philosophy most of the time, um, then the Greeks are your guys. Because although they thought at a very deep level, and although some of their texts can be somewhat difficult, um, they had not lost contact with the real world. Um, and so one thing you may find if you consider your sort of daily life, you think about how you go about your day, um, is that actually you're sort of doing philosophy all the time, or maybe even philosophy is like smuggled into a lot of the choices that you make. An example of this is the question I raised just a moment ago, which is what makes a good friend? I mean, leaving aside my professional life, it's like if I go to the gym and I just strike up a conversation with people, you know, and we were talking about life or whatever, like this is a question that, that vexes a lot of people. How do I make friends? How do I be a good friend? What should I do for my friend? And it's like, you're not actually going to find very good answers to that in a gender studies course. You're not even going to find people addressing the issue. But you know where you will find it is in book seven of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. In fact, you'll find one of the subtlest and deepest treatments of that question anywhere in the world. Um, and the good news that about that is that means you're not alone. You know, I mean, this thing where we're going to toss out or we're going to disregard all of our ancestors because they were backwards and superstitious. It's like, okay, well, now you're in a position that leaves you and your buddies alone in the cosmos, alone in time, alone in space. And you should think twice about whether you really want to be in that position. I don't. I don't feel confident enough in my own moral, intellectual, and personal resources to just charge forth into this great void of life without friends. Um, and, and what reading the ancient works will give you is it will give you friends. It will give you wise friends um, who actually care about the things you care about and can talk to you about them from a place of knowledge. Um, Niccolo Machiavelli in exile in 1513 wrote to his friend about the experience of being cast out from his native city of Florence. And he said, the highlight of my day essentially is that I enter the ancient courts of ancient men. I change my clothes. I scrape the mud off my feet and I walk into my library. And then I talk to Cicero and I talk to uh, Plato and and I encounter these minds from generations past and they are uh, I they feed me the food which is mine alone um, and not for nothing but like we're in an incredibly turbulent 
era of human history. Uh, right now, as we talk to one another, the technology that we're using is not only new, it's just radically transformative of everything we think about ourselves and about one another. The way that we're relating to one another, getting to know each other in this conversation um, is a way of human engagement that might never have even crossed the minds of most people in most times and most places. And you might think that what that means is, well, it renders irrelevant, you know, all that's gone before. But actually what it does is it raises fundamental questions that never go away. Profound issues about what human beings are and, and how they um, how they can know one another and how they can do do rightly. Um, and for answering those questions, spoiler alert, like don't go to the CBC, don't ask Dr. Fauci, like talk to Aristotle. In, in, in your book, How to Save the West, you've identified five crises that are, that are plaguing the West at the moment. Can you give us a broad rundown of what they are? I absolutely can. And it follows on nicely from what we were just saying, because each of these crises represents, I think, one of those fundamental questions, one of those basic eternal issues that we struggle with. Um, and that's actually very close to the meaning of the word crisis in its original sense. We are so hypersaturated with that word, we think, oh, it's the supply chain crisis, it's the COVID crisis, it's this crisis, it's that. And many of the things that we refer to as crises are very bad, or they're troublesome, and we need to think hard about how to deal with them. But they might not necessarily live up to the meaning of the ancient word crisis, which is a Greek word, it comes from the verb krino, uh, I judge, or I make a decision. And so a crisis, a crisis in a in the truest sense is a time for choosing. Um, it's a choice between two fundamentally irreconcilable options. And each of the crises in this book uh, is one such crisis. The first one is, I think, the one that you have to face first before anything else. And that is, um, is there such a thing as absolute truth? Is there a reality independent of our uh, elections, independent of our technology, whatever else you know we may invent or decide? Are there some things that are true absolutely no matter what? Um, or is it all just my truth, your truth, as we've been sort of led to believe over uh, many years now? And so that's the first question you have to answer, because if you can't answer that, then you can't have any other conversations. You can't talk at all if you don't believe in absolute truth. So first section raises the crisis of reality. Is there such a thing as absolute truth? And then uses uh, mostly Socrates, but also his, um, you know, disciples, Plato, Aristotle, and so forth, um, to help answer that question in the affirmative. How might we know truth? What kind of truth might we seek? Um, and that actually leads on to this next crisis, the crisis of the body, because if you are seeking absolute truth, and if that truth exists in some higher realm beyond the here and now, that's eternal, it doesn't change over time, that does kind of leave us in a weird position because we're not eternal. We live in the world of time and space. We decay. We ultimately die. It's very uncomfortable and painful, and it has been for all of human history. And so one of the consolations that I offer in this section of the book is the fact that we are currently suffering from this transgender craze. People want to reshape their bodies. They want maybe even to move beyond their bodies altogether and just become sort of cyborgs or technological entities. Um, that feels very new, but it actually is expressive of a very old and difficult problem, which is how do we live in this flesh? How do we cope with being human beings? Um, and so I offer some answers in that section from Aristotle, especially, but also from Thomas Aquinas and from scripture, um, that actually what we are is not a gender and then a sort of physical body that you know rearranges that 
uh, or that re should be rearranged according to that gender, but but embodied souls that we have souls and that they're written into the language of our flesh. Um, and the minute you start talking in those terms, you have to start talking about God and meaning. And those are the second two, the next two crises, the crisis of meaning, the crisis of religion. Um, can we believe in anything beyond ourselves or has science kind of, you know, rendered all that obsolete? I argue it hasn't and that in fact, in order to understand science, in order to do all the nice things we want to do with our technology, we have to believe in God um, and that there's no getting around that. And then finally, finally, having talked about some pretty high order airy topics, we bring it back down to earth with the crisis of the regime and we talk about America, but the, also the political entities of the West more generally and what's going to happen to them. What are we supposed to be doing in political life and how can we avoid catastrophe? Just on this on this uh, body crisis uh, mm. chapter, the, 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 there is a strange contradiction happening in in society at the moment. On on the one hand, you have a, a body positive a body positivity movement that that has swung so far to one side that obese people are now being shown up as examples of healthy people, and we hear that mantra, you know, healthy at any size, being mm. bandied around. But on the other hand, we have social media filters that are so advanced now that you can perform virtual plastic surgery on yourself lifting your cheekbones and, and sculpting your chin how do we make sense of these of these two two contradictions right well on the one hand this filter culture has led us into this illusion that we can be whatever we want and that it'll that happiness just consists in total control over the borders of our being um and on the other hand, there is this latent fear, I think, that what that does is it creates a situation in which if you can be constantly optimizing every parameter of yourself, then why do you have any flaws at all? And that's when filter culture becomes incredibly punishing and it veers into this extravagant degree of perfectionism, conformism. Um, how can you look most like Kim Kardashian? How can you be the most beautiful, most perfect person you can be? And that, I think, is when you get this reaction, this body positivity, this fat positivity movement. And Lizzo, who does appear in the book, the singer. Um, I she believe she's recently... referred to as o obese singer Lizzo. Is she? Did in I mention book. that in her the obesity? Yes. <laughs> it, came up. Yeah. it came up. It came up. It's a it's a, an illustration of my devotion to truth. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, a wise man once said, uh, very recently, "Sorry, not beautiful." Yeah, yeah, he did say that. Didn't he? <laughs> uh, I would co-sign that about Lizzo, certainly. Um, and "Sorry, not beautiful" is sort of the counterpoint to what Lizzo recently said after the book came out, which is, "I am the beauty standard." Friedrich Nietzsche himself could not have wished for a better illustration of what he referred to as the transvaluation of all values. And that is the ability to subject every standard, every ideal, every supposedly objective quality or excellence to transvaluation, to one's own evaluation based purely on the ego and the, on the personal conviction or the assertion of the self, the will. Um, and that's what the fat positivity movement ultimately is. It's saying, I am going to define for myself the parameters of the good. And unfortunately, both of these things ultimately lead to exactly the same place. And that is this enormous burden placed on 
the self, which is at the same time disintegrated into nothingness because there are no parameters to what you are. And so you just become this kind of amorphous, disembodied will um, that is absorbed into a public consciousness and that then has to define for itself like what it's going to be. And this is driving people insane. It's why the uh, transhumanist offer promises liberation and delivers misery. People get fatter, uglier, sadder, angrier, all the worst possible things that can happen to you are happening right in front of our eyes because this is a raw deal. It's a bum deal. Um, now, it's also a very ancient problem, as I indicated. It's not like this is an easy problem to solve, which is one reason why, at this point, we ought to be clinging to our ancient texts because they actually have some incredible insight into this, especially Aristotle's uh, De Anima on the soul. Um, but Aquinas really picks this up and it's in these, this tradition, which is called the hylomorphic tradition, that we arrive at the idea that actually our souls aren't an illusion, our bodies aren't a mistake. We are embodied souls. And, and this idea, which comes from hule, Greek meaning stuff, matter, and morphe, Greek meaning form or shape, um, gives you the roadmap for what you are. It's the only really sane way to address this and to say, Yes, there is discomfort. Yes, it's uh, going to be difficult. It's going to require sort of effort from me to um, find peace in this place. But it's the only thing that preserves you as you and enables you to think carefully about how you might seek to improve yourself, but also how you might just find peace in yourself, in, in the flesh that you are. Mm. Well, your your chapter on the reality crisis it it scared me the most as yeah. as it explores transhumanism and what what tech companies and figures like Mark Zuckerberg are doing in the realm of virtual reality and and literally plugging human brains into the inter internet or the metaverse as as Zuckerberg uh, has has called it. But on on face value, I guess being able to create an avatar of yourself in any physical form you like seems like a wondrous thing, but you know, I, I, you've hinted at this already, you, you have a very different take. And mm. this all seems tied into that current explosion of transgenderism in society at the moment. Uh, can you perhaps fill us in on, on what transhumanism is and, and why you think it's a disaster for the human race? Transhumanism is the logical continuation of the logic that gives us the transgender crisis, the explosion. It doesn't give us necessarily transgender people. I'm sort of agnostic about the roots of that phenomenon and talk to people who experience real gender dysphoria. And, um, I, I almost feel like it, it, it's, it's, it's not totally irrelevant, but it's almost irrelevant to the question at hand, which is not, are there transgender people, but why has transgenderism exploded into this cosmic force that occupies everybody's minds all the time? And that, seems to be more and more attractive and appealing to young people, or at least is being offered to young people as an attractive route. Um, and the answer has to do with exactly this form of crisis that we're talking about, this promise, this sort of glittering idea that our bodies aren't an essential part of us. They're actually, uh, they're 1.0, they're factory rejects, they are primitive machines. Um, and the ideal would simply be to upgrade them or abandon them altogether. We could live forever. We could be superhumanly strong, intelligent. We could fuse our minds with the internet, with AI. And for me, at least, and I think for a lot of people who feel the heebie-jeebies about this stuff, the real question is not 
um, what can you do with the help of technology, but will it be you that's doing it? Or will the thing that we call you have dissolved in some really fundamental way? And the argument essentially in the book is, you know, the discomforts that we suffer, the challenges that we face, um, the setbacks, the the struggle, um, that's actually the cost of being an entity, a distinct entity that's different from other beings in the world. Um, it is, if you like, the kind of premise of having meaning at all. We don't love reality because things are always going well in it. Um, we love reality because we intuit in some sense that it's our home, that uh, in the real world is where we come up against the boundaries of ourselves. And if ourselves have boundaries, then we know we're, we exist. Um, that's what we lose when we give those limits up. And I really feel that for all that this AI transhumanist like singularity apocalypse seems and sounds so inevitable. Um, I think the instinctive connection we have to the real world and the instinctive, instinctive aversion we feel and express in like every sci-fi movie ever, basically, um, that's very strong still with people. And in fact, it gets stronger, not weaker, as we try to force ourselves into these digital spaces where we don't really fit. Um, and so one benefit of great texts, one reason why I wrote this book, one reason why any of this is out here at all is because, you know, confronting people with that, um, asking and inviting them to fess up to their own discomfort uh, with this supposedly utopian transhumanist future is one of the nearest and dearest hopes I have for um, rejecting this whole deal altogether. You mentioned uh, a, a, a more down and dirty uh, reference at one point in the book, uh, The Matrix, which yeah. I think obviously is a text that a lot of people would have come across. It's um, The Matrix um, by Aquinas, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Aquinas' Matrix. Yeah, no, the, the Wachowski brothers, uh, or, now ostensibly Wachowski sisters, well, The Matrix. Well, yes. it, well, you just, you know dead name them so that's i did i just did i this yeah, podcast are we is canceled, is canceled. yeah this, but this is relevant actually sorry to interrupt you this is relevant that they are transgender i i, I didn't know this that they've oh yeah what it's how, how do i not know this they're og have they, they've been doing it oh forever i'm, I'm out of the loop people read the matrix as a transgender parable but go on well the question i had was there's a character in it, played by Joe Pantoliano, uh, Cipher, who who, mm. who makes the decision in the film to. He's like, I want to go back. He's like, reality sucks. Um, you know, I don't like the dumb ship I'm on. I want to go. I want to eat steak. I want to be. You know, I feel like, which is quite a sophisticated choice that he's making there. In, in a yeah. way, I yeah. just find that most most of what we see online isn't that kind of sophisticated existential choice. What we seem to get is people, now he'd say, what I really want is to be a six foot or 10 foot tall um, kink machine fairy, well hung. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. what he would say, you know? <laughs> so, whereas I, I, I just think that in, in 1999, I would have had no idea 
that the question wouldn't be, oh, I just want to go back into the Matrix so I can have a steak and I want reality to be just a little bit better, you know. Um, yeah. Or maybe he, you know, he's he's dealing with that reality privilege which you uh, which you bring up in your book. But more, of, and Zuckerberg seems to be pushing this idea. It, there's something in the tone of his voice. He's he's basically saying, "You will be a furry kink machine, and you will be happy." <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what exactly it is in the tone of Mark Zuckerberg's voice that says you're going to be a, a horse hung furry kink machine. But I think you're. I mean, I totally, I totally get what you're saying, and. I would suspect that, um, how to put it? So, so Cypher has this moment, right, where he says, like, in my head, the, I, the, I know the Matrix is telling me the steak is juicy and delicious. This will show you how many times I've watched this movie. I can almost recite this scene from memory. That, that But it's not really there. The steak, there is no steak. Um but I'll, but I'll take it. And this raises this profound question, um, which actually I think remains a profound question, even if the offer on the table is not necessarily just a kind of well done, I should say medium rare, but well prepared steak, but rather like be anything that you would ever want to be. And, and the question that like, how good can your sensory experiences get? It's, what's behind your sensory experiences um intrinsic to the value for most of us of our sensory experiences is that they correspond to some ineffable uh reality beyond themselves if i um see you like you know catch a football and you're on my team it's not it's not having that visual experience that delights me it's believing in my core of my being that that visual experience corresponds to a reality that i'm that i'm happy about um the proposal on the table is like we're going to push a bunch of buttons in your brain so that uh, you have the same kind of perceptual experience that you would have if all this good stuff was going on but the good stuff isn't really going to be going on. And there are people who will say, well, there is no difference. I mean, Alan Turing would basically say there is no difference or we can't know if there's any difference. And um, I think Yuval Harari would say something somewhat similar. Um, what I'm betting on, and I've been maybe a losing bet, but it's the only bet I think we can make is that actually that's, that's not um, the same thing. <laughs> that pushing all the buttons in your brain um, so that you feel like you're falling in love is fundamentally not the same thing as falling in love. And that Plato's cave actually, by pulling back the curtain on that uh, sort of experience shows that we are made weak and small by that exchange. And I think we do, all of us feel and, and know that in some kind of recess, animal recess of our minds. And that's the argument that I'm trying to present to people is like, you know, if, if it's not actually, if the thing on the other side of the experience isn't actually there, then it's just, taking drugs, basically. It's like you can shoot yourself up with heroin and feel the same kind of ecstasy, maybe, that you might feel like, you know, after successfully completing a marathon. Um, but we all know, and you know, that successfully completing a marathon has like a richness to it. Um, intrinsic in the experience is its correspondence to some inciting circumstance um, that it's not there when you're shooting yourself up with heroin. And, uh, you know, there are always going to be the ciphers who will say, whatever, just shoot me up with heroin. Um, 
my question, and I think it's an open question, is are the ciphers really in the majority of the human race? Um, and uh, my hope is that the answer is no. Mm, well, people that are on board with, with the metaverse or virtual reality or, or, or whatever we're going to call it, see it as a way to make a true utopia where, where everyone has the opportunity to live whatever life they like, mm. free from physical, social or, or economic constraints. But but what's to say that the metaverse won't also have class structures and hierarchies, rich and poor people? I mean, won't the Donald Trumps of the physical world just buy up all the real estate in the virtual world? Oh, definitely. That's definitely what will actually happen. Um, I think you're right that the sales pitch is, you know, it's interesting because to present prevent the Donald Trumps of the real world from buying up all the real estate. Um, the only way to ensure that that won't happen is to give every person his own hermetically sealed universe where he can be king, irrespective of any other choice that anybody else makes. And then you really will be consigned to hell. I mean, you'll be alone, entirely alone in a universe where everybody else is a figment of your imagination. Um, and that's how Hamlet says I could be bounded in a nutshell and count myself king of infinite space were it not that I had bad dreams. And um, I, I sort of suspect it's like, you know, these things, if you really cash out what they would mean, they would essentially amount to being in hell. And I'm, I'm not like in my darker moments, I'm not convinced that that's not the kind of offer that's on the table is like, take all this pleasure and then you'll be in hell. Um, but yeah, in reality, what will actually happen is what happened when they that I think it was a woman was testing out the metaverse and she got like sexually assaulted or something. It's like it's just it's just the world of humanity, it's like human being stuck and like we're going to do that. We're going to do that sucking in any like medium you give us not to get too vulgar about it. But like the, um, I do think you're right that that's, that's probably closer to the reality of what will, will happen. Um, and also thinking about how to avoid that reality gives you an inkling into the sort of proposition that's actually on the table. Um, and it's not, not all that pretty. So Ricky and I are, are both keen cinephiles and we've been railing against uh, what Hollywood's been churning out for, well, the past decade, but I could I could go on really. Um, it's it's an endless cycle of, of Marvel films. I think when I saw Spider Man two twenty years ago, I, I was like, oh yeah, this is almost done. I was like, this will be just mm, like the John Grisham really? stuff. Like you know, we we will we'll peter out. Uh, I was wrong, <laughs> nice. Spencer. So um, uh, I, I always thought that the the Marvel universe was just sort of a marketing tool to rehash the same boring superhero stories over and over again. But you've observed a, a philosophical idea behind. The universe, uh, which is the multiverse theory, which we're yeah. seeing more and more of now. Three Spider-Men, you know, weird characters hooking up and all that sort of stuff. Can you explain why these films perhaps, well, explain, uh, talk to us about the multiverse for a second, but then maybe uh, explain why these films m make us feel so hollow inside? Well, but wait, hang on a second. Did you see John Wick 4? That's my real question for you. I have yet to see John Wick 4. Um, <laughs> is it, you know, is it Tarkovsky? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's, it, uh, it's approaching a sort of, oh, you know, French auteur. No, um, no, it's fine. In any case, I, I'm, I'm with you on this. I mean, I think that our mainstream pop culture has totally spent itself and then some, I mean, it has become abominably sterile. Um, and I, feel, to be honest, I feel a little bit sick when I'm confronted with yet another Star Wars or whatever. It feels like I'm being buried under sort of ladleful and ladleful of slop. Um, and and, and it, fundamentally, I think that's a symptom, not necessarily of a society, but certainly of a philosophy that has exhausted itself. Um, you're, you're looking at 
people who uh, don't have any new ideas um, and whose basic assumptions about human life are, are simply false. I mean, that like, you know, men and women don't need to get together and start families and that's probably bad and oppressive um that like men don't need to be heroic and women don't need to be nurturing i mean just people that are lying and lying and lying about reality um and those ideas like all false ideas are ultimately sterile they will they'll play them peter peter out in the end um and there is an interesting analog which i talk about in the book between that phenomenon and the exhaustion i think of um atheistic science not science not investigation of the natural world but science which insists upon the non-existence of god and the uh predominance of material over all things matter to the exclusion of all else um and both of these phenomena materialist science and sort of anti-truth art um in their sterility have had to reach for the exact same device which is the metaverse or the multiverse excuse me and the multiverse proposes just because things look like they make sense here and now uh, and everything looks a certain way here is only by accident because actually we live in a giant universe producing machine. Um, and in that universe producing machine, today Spider-Man saves the day, tomorrow he dies, but he actually came back to life in another universe. And um, as many have observed before. Does that spoilers you're giving me? I'm so sorry. I should have. <laughs> yeah. but, there, but there are no spoilers. This is what's so uh, infuriating about it, right? Is that in the multiverse, there are no spoilers because no events actually occur in any meaningful or irrevocable way. And look, a movie about the multiverse, Everything Everywhere All at Once, won the Oscar this year. Like, this is the kind of core um, mechanism now for doing art. And it makes sense if you think about it because of this sterility, because of the need to escape um, what's obviously screamingly true, which is that these ideas don't work and they're, they've played themselves out. But it's so frustrating because, uh, you know, if, people, if I can't explain to you why when Michael has his brother killed in Godfather 2, why that choice is irrevocable yeah. and his soul is lost, he's... Ultimately, we experience a dual sensation because he's the ultimate badass and he's he's a better godfather than his father ever was. Mm. But it came at the cost of his soul. But it's the it's the irrevocable nature of pulling that trigger. Yes, that loses everything. And this is something that it's really hard to communicate to people that you know beyond the completely creepy and sexless nature of these films. Like I mean. Han Solo leaning in over to Le- Leia. I mean, that that ain't happening anymore. Oh no! no. Uh, let, let alone uh, let alone the more important point, which I just brought up, which is is yeah that that uh, I think actions need to be. There's no there's no do overs, and otherwise it's meaningless. Yep. Yeah. Uh, that is really foundational to return now to Aristotle. That's really foundational to kind of Western thought about storytelling altogether. That it. It mimics, it imitates life, and that in life we make choices, and those choices reveal certain things about our character. I mean, you gave a great example with Michael from The Godfather. The things he does uh, are sort of outgrowths of who and what he is. And if there is some universe where he's doing the opposite or something different, then there is nothing to speak of called Michael. Like Michael is not a real thing. Characters in in art matter to us because they imitate they reproduce the shapes of our own lives 
Um, and in those lives, things happen and then they don't unhappen. Um, and if they are happening in some other alternative universe, there's two options. Either that makes literally no difference to me at all because I have no access to it because I'm totally cut off from uh, alternate universes by definition, right? Don't have any relationship to us. Um, or what I mean when I say me is actually this enormous branched kind of uh, stream of information uh, with all sorts of contradictory possibilities inside of it. And my sense of self, my, the sense of my consequence in the universe is totally exploded. Um, there's no getting around that either, I don't think. And it's why, like, after Endgame, I'm being very generous here when I say that Endgame was the last Avengers or Marvel movie that had any interest at all. I mean, I had sort of lost interest way before then because I would, could see where it was going. But once you get to Endgame the only thing you can do is just unmake your previous stories. And that's actually not a very artistically interesting thing to do. Well, Spencer, we're, we're very mindful of time and we're, we're trying hard to squeeze in two more topics here. Okay. Um, uh, religion, you state in your book that science has become a kind of religion. And uh, one observation that you, that you made is that the old religious authorities like clerics and priests have been replaced by scientists and, and health bureaucrats. And, you know, we saw acute evidence of this during the COVID pandemic where we were being instructed to follow the science as though the science was some sort of divine instruction handed down from on high. Uh, and, and the way people have followed figures like Anthony Fauci has had little to do with science either. Has this swapping of science for religion come at, from some sort of a, a, a deep human need to believe in a, in a higher being or a higher purpose, do you think? Yeah, I don't actually think it's it's more than a need. It's a philosophical necessity. The kind of beings that we are are choice-making beings. And when you make a choice, you implicitly, if not explicitly, um, aim at a goal. And when you aim at a goal, you answer the question, Why? Why do I do this? It's because I want that. Now, if you want, let's say, to get out of bed in the morning, um, the question becomes why? And the answer is, well, I want to get my coffee. Well, why do you want your coffee? Because I want to feel alert. Why do you want to feel alert? Well, because I'm going to work. Why? 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 You keep asking that question, and eventually you're going to end up at something that is simply good per se. Let's say that you work to get money, and you want the money to go on vacation, and you want to go on vacation because it's pleasurable to you. Well, then that final answer, I, I like pleasure, I like vacations, I like travel. Um, that is in some sense a, a, an ultimate good for you. Um, and if you chase those why questions far enough down the road, you're ultimately going to end up at something that is absolutely good above all other things per se. It's just implicit in the nature of getting out of bed in the morning. The fact that you make any choice ever um, calls into cite the specter of an enormous list chain of causes and reasons and purposes. Um, and so something is going to be at the end of that chain. And that thing, whether you know it or not, is your God. That is the thing that you are going to bend the knee to and bow to at the end of the day. Maybe it's the science, as you indicated. Maybe it's, uh, you know, our democracy. Uh, maybe it's somewhere in politics. Maybe it's BLM and the uh, you know absolution that you seek from them. But somewhere you are bending the knee to something. And this is why the Bible says the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. It's not because atheists are somehow especially dumb. 
Um, they're just about as dumb as all the rest of us. But what the Bible means by that, what the Psalms mean by that is, if you tell yourself that you're not worshiping something, you've made yourself into a fool. You are kidding yourself and you've blinded yourself to the very basic fact, the, the most fundamental mechanism of how you operate is invisible to you. And therefore, you can't answer even the most basic questions about yourself. You don't understand the first thing about what you are. Um, so you don't stop worshiping. You just stop understanding yourself. You become a fool. Once you see that, the question becomes not, will I worship or will I not? But what will I worship? And what is worthy to be in that final good spot? What will set me free? What can I worship without fear that I will be enslaved? Um, and that's the question in front of you. Not will I be an atheist or not, but what will I serve? Well, I think that the best thing people could do is, practically speaking, is to get your book uh, however they can, uh, read mm. it or listen to it. Uh, and that will actually provide them a practical into a lot of the stuff we've been talking about. Um, uh, the highest praise I can give it is that it's a one-speed book. Okay. Wow. It's a one-speed book. touched by that. So, they don't sound like a chipmunk. But I want to give you the final word, Spencer. So... A bit of a selfish question, you know, can you, can you talk to us briefly about truth and beauty in art? Oh, with delight. Uh, how, how long do you have? Um, look, <laughs> Keats, famously the romantic poet uh, in his ode to the Grecian urn, said or had the urn say, beauty is truth, truth, beauty. Uh, and the last lines are, that is all you know on earth and all you need to know. And there's a certain way to understand that that must be wrong. And it goes something like this. Um, if something is pretty, then it's true. If I can say something in a beautiful way, then that's true. Um, and if something is true, it'll be beautiful. Um, and for instance, you know, anything that, that only nice things are, are true. We know those, those are both wrong. So there must be something else that, that Keats is saying here. And what I think he's saying is, the fact of something's being true has a beauty in and of itself. Even if the truth itself, the thing that you're saying that is true might be just uncomfortable and painful. Um, nevertheless, it's truth. The, the very fact of its being true has a, a, a beauty that even transcends the ugliness of the thing being said. So let's say that I have to say to you, um, John, your, your breath smells. You don't, your breath doesn't smell very, very good, right? Um, and luckily, uh, we've never been in the same room together, so I have no idea if this is the case. But let's say it's true. It's not a very pretty or nice good thing. If it's true, though, there's a reason for me to say it because it matters and I want you to trust me and I want you to you know, fix this problem. The beauty of that truth trumps, triumphs for me over um, the ugliness of having to say it, the fact that it's not a very pleasant thing. Um, this indicates, actually, that uh, over and above the sort of visual beauty that we might experience, the prettiness, the superficial loveliness of, of our senses, um, there is a beauty which is one with truth. Um, and similarly, uh, when you have something, you know, that is uh, ugly and yet true, right, that is like, let's say, you're depicting a murder, that's ugly. Um, but the fact that murder happens, right, makes it true. And therefore we have, says Aristotle in his poetics, like a certain attraction to the truth of the depiction. We want to see reality. Um, and so truth and beauty are united in this very fundamental way that at their highest, 
um, and in their best, uh, uh, the best way that we can know them um, is when they are united as as one. Um, there is a rebuke in this for both conservatives and leftists when it comes to art, because I suspect that um, conservatives um, love to say truths, but they don't spend that much time caring about whether their truths are be beautifully put or expressed in beautiful ways. Um, and they also, there's, there are certain truths that they simply don't want to, to see or look at in art, uh, sex, violence, rock and roll. Um, we, we often avoid those things. And that's because we think that art functions in the, in a, in some sort of like propositional way that if you look at art, that's what you're supposed to go do. Um, we don't grasp as conservatives that actually art is showing you reality, that its beauty consists in its demonstration of reality. Um, the left thinks that there's no such thing as truth. And so they want art to call truth into existence by making falsehoods beautiful. Um, and that's sort of the whole project of wokeness is like, let's make movies that uh, persuade people that, that false things are true by making them look beautiful. Um, if you if you seek to make and evaluate great art, um, you must in this respect be neither a conservative nor a leftist. You must simply be a lover of truth and, and beauty. And you must, in loving them, trust that they will set you free um, and lead you to something higher and better than anything you could have wanted if you just went for you know, some, some partial version of the truth dictated to you by your, by your ideology, because it's, your ideology is always going to be smaller than God. And by the same token, it will always be smaller than, um, than great art. Um, uh, so I, I would say that this is actually really urgent for um, getting beyond the stuff that's obviously not working about our, about our politics. Um, if we could, if we can make a great, if we can reestablish a great national art that, um, actually takes truth and beauty seriously and understands them to be inseparable from one another in their highest form. Um, we will be well on our way to something, something better than is currently on offer from either of the two political parties. Well, we've, we've already discussed one of our missions on this show, which is to get people reading more. And, and one way we, we do that is we, we ask all of our guests what they are reading right now. So we, we'd like to know what's, uh, what are you reading right uh, now? We actually don't even, I guess you're not using the video, but you I can just turn my camera. And we can Goodness look me. together at a giant <laughs> stack of books. It's, it's a library. daunting stack of books. They look the very Sorry. handsome. It's a handsome stack of books. You like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. The main thing that I'm that I'm reading that's that's most on my mind is called Meditations on the Tarot, um, and it's a big uh, volume of reflections, mystic reflections on each of the tarot cards written by a Christian that once sat apparently on the shelf of a pope. Um, so it's sort of weird, it's interesting, the French hermetic tradition. Um, I would recommend this highly. Uh, talks a lot about stuff that we typically think of as sort of off limits for Christians, things like tarot cards and um, and, and and mysticism. Uh, I, it's it's very mind expanding and interesting. There's a film. Um, the there's a, is, a filmmaker yeah. we love called uh, Alessandro Horowski, and he is into tarot. He is. I yeah. feel like oh, cool. I feel like only interesting people are seriously into tarot. <laughs> I like that idea. I, I have never like even looked at this. This book is my first even introduction to what the cards even have on them. Hmm. Um, but I'm finding it profound. I, I actually really, really like this book. So I would endorse it. What are you guys reading? 
Oh, um, <laughs> well, we mainly read stuff for the show. <laughs> so, well, so you're reading How to Save the West by Spencer Payne. Well, yes, anyway. yeah, we, we, we both finished that book recently. Uh, I, I'm reading Gulag Archipelago right now, and I'm also chipping away at Infinite Jest and by David Foster Wallace. I just finished uh, Rabbit Redux by John Updike. Nice, okay. So, because I figure, you know, one petty affront that I can show these these uh, wokesters is to love all the things they don't like. Absolutely. In fact, you should, I think, define your whole personality that way. Just anti- <laughs> anti- <laughs> um, I, I did for, we talked, we started out talking about poetry memorization. The um, poetry that we memorized for April was John Updike's Seven Stanzas at Easter. Let us not mock God with metaphor. It's a great poem. I'm embarrassed. I didn't know that. Of course he did poetry. I forgot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a great poem. <laughs> so check it out. Yeah. Uh, well, Spencer, y- your book is titled How to Save the West. It's out everywhere, including audiobook, which is the way John and I read this book. Now, uh, just a, a, a plug here. Where can people follow you? Uh, are you on social media? Uh, thank you so much for asking. And yeah, as you mentioned, the book is everywhere. You get books. Um, the Audible version is read by me. And I, for my sins, tweet. So you can find me at Spencer Clavin. And I do reckless things like cast forth into the void a list of all the best intellectuals from every century. And then I let people fight about them. So it's good fun. Come find me. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today, Spencer. Thank you. It's been a delight. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.